0: Well, if you have a Bible there with you, if you want to turn to Mark chapter 13, our sermon text is Mark 13 verses 1 through 8, and as as is our custom, I'll ask that you stand for the reading of God's word this morning. Mark chapter 13 verses 1 through 8, Mark writes, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? And they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's uh, go to him again and ask his blessing upon his word to us that we might have understanding and know these things uh, rightly. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have given this to us to be a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we we really need you to teach us any part of your word. We cannot on our own understand Uh, one speck of your word rightly and we know when we come to passages such as this that that's even more obviously the case so we pray that you would be pleased to work in us by your spirit teach us give us eyes to see and ears to hear great things from your word instruct us in how we should believe strengthen our faith and give us grace to know how better to walk according to your will for it's in christ's name we pray amen well uh, Mark chapter thirteen. If you've been reading along as we've gone through the book these last twelve chapters, uh, you might know already that Mark thirteen—it's called the Olivet Discourse—very uh, often is the longest section of of teaching, the teaching of Christ in the entire Gospel of Mark. You know, if you've if you've been following along, you've noticed that we said we said it a number of times. Mark is a Gospel of action. You know, Mark Mark uh, focuses on what Jesus does. Much more than than he does on what Jesus says, not that he discounts the importance of Christ's teachings and whatnot. But he, you know, Matthew and John and Luke they give these large blocks of Jesus's teachings. You know, if you have a red letter Bible, the other three Gospels have lots of red in them. When you read Mark, there's not much. Uh, not that I recommend necessarily having the red letters. The whole Bible's God's word, so what does it matter? Um, but anyway, Mark Mark it's a lot of action. It's a lot of uh, I think we've said. In what 16 chapters, he uses the word "immediately" over 40 times. He's in a hurry. He wants the the action to move along. It's the shortest gospel. It's the one that focuses the most on what Jesus does. Uh, and yet, here in Mark 13, it's almost like you're you ever been in the car and you're driving fast, and the car in front of you hits the brakes all of a sudden, and you weren't ready for it. It's so what do you do? You slam on the brakes, and if you have if you're if you're a dad, your arm juts out to the person next to you. You know, it's almost like Mark is slamming on the brakes here. And he wants us to stop and really get our attention. Uh, and I think the fact that Jesus, the entire chapter is Jesus' teaching, should get our attention. Because Mark doesn't do that very often, so this must be awfully important. Anything Jesus says or does is important. But when Mark, in his particular gospel, has this much of Christ's words recorded for us, I think that should get our attention. There are parallel passages in in Matthew's Gospel in chapters 24 and 25. Mark Mark takes one chapter. Jesus basically takes two. Uh, Luke chapter 21 is also a parallel passage to this. So you can always read those passages and kind of compare and get more details, uh, more understanding from those. Uh, already mentioned this is often called the Olivet Discourse. All that means is the reason they call it that was where was Jesus when he taught it? The Mount of Olives. And so the Olivet Discourse is just one way of understanding uh, which, which sermon, so to speak, we're talking about. Um, this chapter, if you don't already know, is one of the most uh, notoriously difficult passages to interpret in the entire New Testament, if not the entire Bible. If you were to, at random, you know, pick six commentaries or something on it, you'd probably come away thinking, that I just read six different answers to what this account uh, is, is about. Um, And why is that? What's the subject here? Well, it's eschatology. What's eschatology? End times, the last things, the the doctrine of the last things. Um, And so it shouldn't be much of a surprise to us when it deals with eschatology that we have so many different views on it, why we have such difficulty at times understanding uh, parts of it. You'd probably be hard-pressed to find a single subject, even a single passage in all of Scripture, that Bible-believing, sincere Christians have disagreed over more often than down through the, the centuries of church history on top of that than this subject and maybe even this particular passage and the parallel passages as well. Now, needless to say, there's not exactly a consensus on what this passage teaches, this, this chapter. There certainly is not unanimity on what the, the Sermon on the Mount of Olives uh, teaches regarding the end times, even about uh, the destruction of of the temple now there are a number of different uh, tendencies in, in viewing this passage this, this whole chapter of that is uh, some some teach that everything in this passage is practically past tense in other words from our perspective that all these things have already taken place uh, that's that, that is a very prominent view and many of those uh, that have such a view they would say that these things all happened around in and around AD 70. AD 70 is when the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed and when the city was leveled to the ground by the Romans, when the Roman army sacked Jerusalem, they, they raised, not R-A-I-S-E-D, but R-A-Z-E-D, raised the temple to the ground uh, to the shock of those who never thought such a thing could could happen. Other people focus mostly on the future aspects. What they see is the future aspects of what Jesus says and they they often hold that just about everything in this chapter is yet to come. They almost they seem to ignore AD 70 or treat it like a footnote of some of some kind. They even would teach sometimes that the temple in Jerusalem uh, has to get rebuilt in the future. And that it's a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. Uh, there at that great, what they call the Great Tribulation period. That's that's kind of the thing everybody wants to know about. There have been many books, even fictional books and series of fictional books, the Left Behind series that deal with these kinds of things or this view of those things. And finally, the third view, not that there's only three, but the tendencies is what I'm talking about. Uh, others hold that Jesus' words here in the, the uh, Mount of Olives address both what was in the near future in his day, that is the destruction of the temple, as well as what was in the, the distant future, at least from their perspective, um, and that is the return of Christ to judge the living and the dead. Well, our, our view, I'll give you a hint, falls more along the lines of this third view, although it has much sympathy with the first view, um, that, that it's, it's both. That it, it deals mainly, a lot of this chapter deals mainly with the destruction of the temple, the end of the, of the, uh, the Jewish dispensation of, of things on this earth, um, but it's going to deal with things future as well as we get into the other passages in this chapter. J.C. Ryle kind of sums the whole chapter up in a sense for us. He says the chapter we ne- we've now begun is full of prophecy. Prophecy of which part has been fulfilled, you know, past tense, and part remains to be accomplished. Two great events form the subject of this prophecy. The one one is the destruction of Jerusalem and the consequent end of the Jewish dis- Jewish dispensation. The other is the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and the winding up of the state of things under which we now live. In other words, if I can use the word dispensation in a Presbyterian church, uh, this passage deals with the end of two dispensations, the one being the Jewish one, where the temple was kind of the center of all things, where the nation of Israel as an earthly nation was kind of the hub of all things God was doing. And the second dispensation that's going to end is when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. That dispensation is what we have now, what we're experiencing uh, in the church age. Now it must be said that much of what Jesus says here in our text uh, does, does deal directly with those terrible events in and around AD 70 when the Roman army came in and sacked Jerusalem and destroyed that temple that the disciples were so impressed by and thought, it was unthinkable to, to them that it could be destroyed. And the first thing, that destruction of the temple, is what we're going to deal with mainly here in verses 1 through 8, although it does deal with it later on in the chapter as well. Now, we, you notice we didn't read the whole chapter. Uh, if I tried to handle this entire chapter in one sermon, we'd be here for quite a while. We'd be here until Sunday night Bible study and might have to preempt that. So what we're going to do is go through one little section at a time, uh, one piece at a time, as Johnny Cash uh saying, and uh, it didn't cost me a dime, right? We're going to go through each, each part of the chapter one paragraph or so at a time. And uh, the first thing we're going to look at is Jesus' prophecy of the destruction of the temple uh, in Jerusalem, why that is, what the significance of that event uh, was uh, in the history of the church. And so the first thing we're going to look at this morning is the, the prophecy, Jesus' shocking prophecy of the destruction of the temple what does it say in verse 1? You know, what is, Where is he going in verse 1? I don't think it's an accident that Mark puts it this way. He says uh, you know, they were leaving the temple. As he came out in the last chapter or so, Jesus was where? In the temple. He spent the better part of the last two chapters teaching in the temple, being questioned by religious leaders, answering their questions, answering their objections. And now he's coming out, verse 1, of the temple. And one of his disciples says to him, Look, teacher, What wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, verse 1. Now, you know, it's hard for us, it's hard for, maybe it isn't for you, it's hard for me to appreciate and comprehend how how large the temple complex was. How uh, visually it would would have been stunning. It would have been, you know, they're not wrong in a sense to tell Jesus and, and ask him, you know, wow, look at this. Just look at this place. Maybe they hadn't been there very very often, uh, the Bible in John chapter 2, verse 20 tells us that this temple of Herod, this is the second temple, right? It took 46 years to build. Remember, Jesus says, you know, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. And they say, what do they say? They misunderstand him. They take him too literally. And they say, this temple has taken 46 years to build, and it wasn't done yet, frankly. And you're going to raise it up in one day? like what kind of teacher are you is kind of what they were they thought he was out of his mind well according to one estimate to give you some idea some of the stones that were used in the construction of this temple the temple of Herod were over 60 feet long and 7 feet high that's that's some kind of brick house that's a i mean 60 feet long try to if you're a mechanical mechanically minded person try to picture that in your head that's one stone one stone of the wall and of the temple it uh, would have been, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it, there's, no, there's no doubt as to why the disciples were so impressed. And as they're leaving, they're telling Jesus, it's almost like they missed the point of what he said in the previous chapters. They're still looking at the temple and saying, wow, look at this. When just in the previous chapter, what did Jesus say? This is supposed to be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. Jesus was not happy with what was going on in the temple And so how how does Jesus reply? Does Jesus say, gosh, you guys are right. Look at these walls. Look at these stones. Look at these buildings. You're right. This is a really impressive thing. He he doesn't even try to to gently go into the subject according to Mark's gospel. He just says, verse 2, do you see these great buildings? You know, you could forgive them for saying, we just said, look at the building. Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be what? Thrown, not fall down, not you know, fall apart over time due to lack of maintenance. You know, the deacons of the temple didn't take care of the walls. Thrown down. Not one stone that isn't going to be thrown down from each other. You're impressed by this? There's something else you're going to be impressed by. This whole thing's going to come down. Every last stone in this temple, the walls, the buildings, it's all coming down. You can imagine how much of a shock that must, to us looking, you know, almost 2,000 years after the, after the fact, we're not shocked by it. We should be shocked by it. They must have been shocked by it. It's a, it's a violent image, thrown down. These stones are going to come down. They're going to be thrown down. They're going to be torn down. The, the, its destruction would be as horrific as the temple had been impressive. That's, that's the picture Jesus is painting here. Now, this this prediction of the temple's destruction, as shocking as it no doubt was to the disciples, was not without context, even here in Mark's gospel. In other words, as we're going through Mark's gospel, we should have sort of seen this coming. We really should have. Jesus has been dropping hints left and right that things are not the way they should be and things aren't going to remain the way that they are. Back, you know, two short chapters ago, Mark chapter 11, what happens then, the triumphal entry? This is the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry. This is the Passion Week. He enters Jerusalem in the triumphal entry. What does he do? The first thing he does when he walks in the temple, according to Mark's gospel, we call it the cleansing of the temple, where he, what does he do? He drives out the sellers. He's throwing people out by the ear. You know, he's practically chucking people out left and right. He's overturning the tables of the money changers. I mean, the fact that he's not happy is an understatement here. And what does he say to them? He quotes Isaiah 56, 7. He says, is it not written? In other words, you people should have known this. It's in the writing of Isaiah. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. In other words, the people knew they should have known what the temple was to be used for. But what does he say they had turned it into? A den of not just thieves, robbers. Again, that's a violent, awful image. For, for any house of God a house of worship to be at, a den of robbers um, is is a it's hard to overstate how strong of a rebuke that really that really was There can be no doubt that the abuse of the temple there in Jesus day was a reflection of the unbelief of many in Israel especially those who are among the leadership the religious leadership of of the people the scribes the Pharisees the Sadducees the, the chief priests and all of them they were in charge and what what had God's house turned into not a house of prayer but a den of robbers that was a very strong rebuke it's not for no reason that Jesus is asked right after that you know where did you get this authority you know who made who died and made you boss over the temple they didn't understand who Jesus was they still didn't believe yet yeah, now what was the problem was their confidence not in the temple itself Were they not trusting in the presence of the temple of God, and the walls around the city of Jerusalem, rather than trusting in God Himself, and especially rather than trusting in Christ? Were they trusting in Christ? Most of them, no. That's an understatement. They rejected Him. They were seeking His destruction. They they missed the entire point of the temple, in how it pointed forward to Christ, from the beginning. And think about this. This is the second temple right? We just finished reading through Isaiah's, Isaiah's gospel. I said, you can call it that. The book of Isaiah, the gospel in the Old Testament, right? Much of Isaiah was talking about the temple and their abuses of the temple and really foreshadowed its destruction. The, the, the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah, right? It does the same thing. Jeremiah is, is foretelling the, 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 the Babylonian exile, the captivity, and that included the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple back in 586 B.C., this is what, uh, what Jeremiah writes. Listen to Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 15. Remember, the temple had already been destroyed once for similar sins, hadn't it? For similar unbelief and rebellion against God. And here Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 7, verses 1 through 15. It's a little bit of a lengthy reading, but it, it all, I think, helps when we look at our passage this morning. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord... This is what God tells Jeremiah to do. Notice what he tells him to do. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house. What house is that? The temple. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Uh, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. They're coming to worship, and God's telling them, you know, not so fast, right? Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. What deceptive words? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. What were they doing? God was their lucky rabbit foot. The temple, rather, was their lucky rabbit. As long as we have the temple, we have God in our pocket. It's a big pocket, but we have God. Nothing can touch us. You know, you can, you can see how they might even twist Paul's later words in Romans. You know, if God is for us, who can be against us? If the temple is among us, who can be against us? Right? They were trusting in the building. They weren't trusting in the God who was supposed to dwell in that building. He, can, he goes on, he says, for if God says, for if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, he's calling them to repent, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the soldier." Sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, that jumps off the page when you think of Mark chapter 12. They devoured widows' houses, these religious leaders the scribes, or shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever." Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. What words? This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, right? Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by what? My name and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, there it is again. Has this house, which is called by my name, here it is, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Jesus' words in Mark, earlier in Mark chapter 11, were from Jeremiah 7. And not without reason. It says, Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first. And see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord. And when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name, and w- in which you trust, and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers, as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight, as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of of Ephraim. That's the northern tribe. He's saying they went into exile, and you got, this is probably what happened. The northern tribes got taken into exile went with it by Assyria, right? Well, Judah still had Jerusalem, Judah still had the temple, and they said, ah, look at those, look at Ephraim. They're getting what's coming to them, but because they, they worshiped in their own temple, their own, their own place, we've got the temple. We're fine. It's all good. Make the temple great again. You know they're wearing, they're wearing their red hats. They're saying, we're, we're good to go because we've got the temple. And what, is, what does Jeremiah say? What does God say through Jeremiah? Not so fast. You've got yours coming too. They, they worshiped idols. What are you doing? You're offering things to Baal. You're committing, you know, what does he say? You know, theft, adultery, murder, swearing falsely, making offerings to Baal, going after other gods. And then you want to come back to my house. And you want to worship like, hey, we're doing, we're checking that box, God. We're checking that box in your box, in the temple. Long as we do that, whatever we do outside of these walls doesn't matter. Nobody does that today, right? Of course not, right? And what does he saying? In other words, he's saying, this house is going to get destroyed. God says over and over again, I lost kind of how many times he says it. This house, which is what? Called by my name. This house, again, which is called by my name. And he talks about Shiloh. He says, remember Shiloh? I judged my people before about a place that was called by my name that they had abused, that they had twisted around and committed wickedness. Now, were the Jews in Jesus' day not doing the same thing? And was Jesus not rebuking them for the same thing? Were they not essentially saying, even though Rome was controlling them at the time, and Rome was, you know, their, their neck was under the boot of Rome, they were saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. And Jesus is trying to remind them, and think about that, when he rebuked them about the den of, the den of robbers, if they knew their, their book of Jeremiah, the scroll of Jeremiah, that would have stung. He would have been like, you know, this temple that you guys have your trust in, it's come down before. It's, it, God, God has judged this place before. Uh, and he'll do it again. That's what we see here in Mark chapter 13. Now, no doubt their rejection of Christ in the gospel of Mark makes their unbelief even more pronounced and obvious. Uh, They had not only abused and desecrated the temple of the Lord, but they abused, rejected, and sought to destroy the very one whom the temple, the priesthood, the Levitical sacrificial system, all of that was supposed to point forward to Christ himself. I mean, you know, It's easy to look at them and say, oh, they revered the temple. Well, they, they revered the building. They didn't revere what it, what it was pointing. What was the purpose of the temple? What was, all the, what was the purpose for all the confusion when Jesus said, tear down this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again? Remember what he said he was talking about? But he spoke about his body. Who, who is the main point of the temple to begin with? Jesus what was the temple? The temple was a place where sinful man could meet safely with a holy God. It was the place of sacrifice for sin. It was a place where there was a where there were high priests that interceded for the, for the for the for sinners. It was it was that was it was a place where God could dwell with man and man could approach and worship God safely because of the the atoning sacrifice. Now those, what does Hebrews say? The blood of bulls and goats did what? Did it ever take away sins? No! Those, those, I mean, God, all through the Old Testament, it seems like He constantly has to say, do I take pleasure in the, you know, bulls and goats? Am I hungry? Does, does God need food? Is that why I'm having you guys kill all these animals and, and have the smoke rise up and all this? No! Those sacrifices were meant for one thing, to point forward to the Lamb of God, as John the Baptist said, who takes away the sins of the world. They missed the point of the temple. They missed the point of of the priesthood. They missed the point of the entire sacrificial system. It all pointed forward to Christ, whom they rejected by and large. So they missed the entire point of not just the temple itself, but of the one that was standing before them at the same time. As the fulfillment of the prophecy of Christ in our passage here this morning, there has been a lot written. I won't try to recount all of that for you here this morning. We have the secular account of this written by a man you may have heard of named Josephus. If you ever get a chance to read his works, uh, it is a secular history of sorts that tells of the destruction of the temple. And it tells of it in such a way that it makes Jesus' prophecy here pretty stunning to read. It was very accurate in detail. Uh, William Hendrickson, uh, commentator, summarizes these events briefly for us. He says, "'As to the fulfillment when the Jews rebelled against the Romans,' Uh, Jerusalem was taken by Titus, son of the emperor Vespasian. The temple was destroyed. It it is believed that more than a million Jews who had crowded into the city perished. As a political unit, Israel ceased to exist. As a nation specially favored by the Lord, it had reached the end of the road even long before the beginning of the Jewish war. Now, the event of eighty seventy. Uh, I don't think we can begin to comprehend and appreciate the the magnitude of what happened and what it was a signal of, you know, when you think of, of the of the crucifixion of Christ and the curtain that was torn in the temple from top to bottom. What, what was that a hint of? That was a hint of things were changing, that, that the way to God had been made through the, the broken flesh, the broken and torn flesh and spilled blood of Christ himself it was no longer to be uh, to be accessed through the temple the temple as hebrew says that whole system was being made obsolete it was passing away because it had been fulfilled the whole point of it had been fulfilled now jesus words about the temple's destruction you know put yourselves if it's possible in the disciples shoes or sandals they just were telling jesus how impressive these stones and buildings were and jesus tells them bluntly it seems Not one stone. Look around at these stones. Not one single stone is going to be left on top of the other. And then what does it say? It says he not only left the temple, he went over to the Mount of Olives. And the ESV says opposite the temple. You know, I I can't help but think of of the picture that comes to my mind. Maybe it doesn't come to your mind when you read this. Um, I think of Jonah. Now, Jesus is much better than Jonah. Jonah was a rebellious prophet, right? But remember what Jonah did? When he finally gave up and you know finally did God's will and preached, preached the message of destruction and God caused repentance in Nineveh, and Jonah was so happy that God used him to evangelize the Assyrians, no, right? Jonah was mad. Jonah was like, no. So what does Jonah do? Jonah goes up on a hill, sits under a plant, a gourd, I don't know how big this gourd must have been that it gave him shade, broke out the popcorn. What was he hoping for? He wanted to see fire from heaven rain down on Nineveh. Even though he says to God, he knew God was going to show mercy, it's why he didn't want to go. If he thought that God was going to rain down fire on Jerusalem, on Nineveh, he would have gone with, I mean, he would have gone with bells on. He would have been on the first boat to Nineveh. The reason he didn't want to go was because he knew that God was a God who showed mercy, and somehow deep in his bones, as much as he hated Nineveh, he knew God was going to turn them was going to grant them repentance. But what did he do? He went up on a hill, sat down opposite Nineveh. He wanted to see the show. He wanted to see the fire. He was hoping to see God change his mind again. And what happened? God didn't judge Nineveh. God judged the plant that was giving him shade. And it made him angry. Well, here you see Jesus, the anti-Jonah, sitting opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives. I think it's a picture of judgment. He, he, he leaves the temple, he sits down opposite and facing it. It's a picture of, of getting out before the place is brought, is brought down. And so what do they do? His disciples start coming to him, one after the other, privately and saying, you know, they want to know what, what happened. Look at verses 3 through 8. The signs of the end is what Jesus tells us here. It says, and as he sat on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, opposite the temple... For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there will be earthquakes in various places, there will be famines. These are what they are but the beginning of birth pains or the beginning of sorrows. Now it seems striking that jesus disciples at least to me it seems striking they don 't seem to object that the of the about the idea that the temple might be destroyed maybe maybe this, that objection is somehow implied in their questions you know. How can this be? They ask when. They ask when these things are going to take place. They ask what sign would accompany this thing happening? How are they supposed to know when it would happen? And what's the first thing that Jesus tells them in response? It may seem strange to us. He says he tells them not to be led astray. Verse 5. And he gives the reason for that. In verse 6 he says many, not a few, not one or two, many will come in my name. Saying, I am He, and they will lead many astray. In other words, some would even come forward and say, they were the Christ. You know, the the idea of a crucified Christ, uh, they couldn't, many couldn't fathom. And so, after Jesus dies and and, and rises from the grave on the third day, many were going to come after him and say, I am He. Those things happened. People still tried to pull the wool over people's eyes and claim to be the Messiah tried to come in a military fashion and rise up, raise up a rebellion against Against the Romans, many would come in his name. And what does he say? That they will lead many astray. As sad as it is to hear that, false prophets have always been around. They've always abounded. There's always been, same word, many. Uh, Not just in the Old Testament, but in Jesus' day and in our day as well. How How many of them lead people astray? Think about this. What's the subject we're dealing with? eschatology. How many false teachers, false prophets have come around in the name of Christ and led people astray specifically by things about eschatology? Almost all of them in some way have twisted the doctrine of the last things to lead people astray. So Jesus warns us and the disciples against false teachers who would dare to come in his name. Imagine, remember that passage in Jeremiah 7 that we just read a little while ago? That over and over again God says, the place that's called by my name, people coming, taking the name of the Lord in vain and claiming to be teaching in his name. Imagine, Just imagine the judgment they're going to incur for doing that. God cares about his name. We pray about it every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. We we read it every time you read the Ten Commandments. God's name is to be hallowed, and those who teach in his name false things to lead people astray, he will judge. Now, what does he say? He says that you know, He warns us against seeing or seeking signs in every other thing we read about in the paper. Every war or catastrophe on the stage of current world events, he says in verses 7 to 8, not to be alarmed when you hear of what? Wars and rumors of wars. I don't know about you, when I hear about war, I'm, I'm pretty alarmed. It's not a pleasant thing to think about. Earthquakes and famines. How often have you heard Bible teachers when some hurricane, earthquake, or something happens, that's the next thing in their sermon. He's talking about, oh, this must be a sign, this means this, this means Jesus is coming back next Tuesday. And they lead people astray. What does Jesus say? That doesn't mean it's the end. That means it's the beginning of what? Birth pains. Birth pains. It's the beginning of the end. But it's not the end. Now think about this. How much of modern preaching and teaching on the end times seems to operate in such a way that is explicitly contrary to Christ's words here? Not just picking dates, which many have done and been wrong every time. But, you know, they they, they kind of, um, I've kind of already mentioned it, they kind of break out the newspaper, you know, and they point to current events as fulfilling this and that in the book of Ezekiel, in the book of Daniel, in the book of Revelation. This this is it. How many times I've been in churches where it seems like every 20 years there's a different fulfillment of the exact same prophecies, you know, back in my in my old old Navy days, not old Navy, but old Navy days, uh, in the Second Gulf War, every other prophecy was suddenly about Iraq. Well, now that's not the case. Now it's Iran. Next week it's next North Korea. The week after that it's China. Everybody keeps on changing, uh, moving the goalposts, so to speak. So they're not wrong. So they don't look wrong uh, in front of, of people. People are often pointing to current geopolitical events and warfare and disasters. And they do so in such a way as, it seems to me, designed to alarm believers. What does Jesus say? Don't be alarmed. This isn't that. Much of our preaching, I think, on this subject is designed to do the exact opposite of what Jesus says. It's designed to alarm even Christ's sheep. And I think that's that's wrong. Let us not be deceived or let us stray. That's what Jesus says. And let us not be so zealous to treat the scriptures as if they were required to have some kind of a decoder ring or perhaps an enigma machine, in order to understand it. I do not have a decoder ring. I have a wedding ring and a class ring. If you're hoping I have a decoder ring, I apologize in advance. I do not have that when it comes to the Scripture. Uh, Let us beware of an inordinate, improper desire to understand the mysteries of God's Word, even the deep things of God, just for curiosity's sake. I just want to be in the know. Inquiring minds want to know. right? Or maybe for pride's sake. Now, I think this, this enters into this subject maybe more than any other thing in Scripture. You know, it, it's almost a Gnostic mentality. Now, I won't go into what the Gnostics were, but the word comes from the word knowledge. Gnosis was knowledge. Well, who doesn't want to have the inside scoop? It's like kind of tre- treating the Bible as gossip. You know, I know something you don't know. I've got the decoder ring. It, it's a puffed-up, prideful thing. I have the right view on the millennium, and, you know, this other ignorant Christians don't. It's never, nothing in Scripture like that is given just so we might know more. It's never, even Jesus here doesn't teach these things that way. They're taught that we might know God better, we might be better equipped to do his will in all things, we might be kept from false teaching. All these things it's given for. It's meant to to teach the gospel. It's meant to teach us to turn from our sins and turn to Christ. These pictures of judgment, the flood, the destruction of the temple, should, should draw people to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, biblical eschatology, as we read in our chapter, it's never, never there just for our own satisfaction of our morbid curiosity. It's not there to feed our vain pride. It's, you know, if you think about this, uh, pride in knowledge of eschatological things is about the most backward thing we could, we could think of on these things. If, if this chapter, I'll, I'll confess something right now, this chapter humbles me. And I hope it humbles you. And I say that because when I read it, I don't go, of course, this means that. This means this will be the easiest chapter I've ever preached. I've been kind of eyeballing this chapter for a few chapters now, looking forward and saying, Oh, you know, I don't know how I'm going to preach this. I'll let you know next week how I'm going to preach the next passage. I don't, it's, it's a difficult text. And if this text doesn't draw us to humility, I don't know what else in scripture would do that. Now, Think about this. There are notes of practical application. We didn't read the whole chapter. Maybe you did on your own. But there are notes of practical application and and admonition found all through this chapter, including our passage this morning. In verse 5, what does Jesus say? He says that we are to see or to watch that no one leads us astray. He tells us in verse 7, not to be alarmed or disturbed when you hear of wars and rumors of wars. There's application there. Right? He wants to settle us in our faith. Verse 9 he tells the disciples it's the same word as used for see in the previous passage to be on your guard, literally to see or to watch regarding the persecution and trials they were going to endure for his namesake. Watch out, this is what's coming he tells them, right? He calls his people the disciples and us to endure to the end. Verse 13 then in the last part of the chapter verses 32 to 37 Three different times he tells them and us to keep or to stay awake. And there's an application for a sermon if I ever heard one, right? Keep or stay awake. Three times he repeats it for us there. Now this chapter is full of application. And again, biblical eschatology is never given for mere trivia or curiosity's sake. What's one application I can think of here this morning that we can learn from this? just the first eight verses of the Olivet Discourse is the first lesson that Jesus teaches the disciples here. And it's easy to kind of you know, gloss over it or move right right past it. Now, what was the previous text that we looked at last Sunday? Back in, in the previous, the end of the previous chapter was the widow's mites. The widow, the widow, the poor one poor widow that gave two small copper coins. And Jesus says, you know, come over here, guys. You've got to see this, right? I'm paraphrasing. This woman, this poor widow, this one poor widow with her two little tiny coins that won't pay for much of anything, you know, pack of bubble gum cards or something. Uh, was she gave more than everybody else gave that day? She gave more than all the rich people that were giving large donations. Hers was the biggest. Not just for sentimental value, she gave the most because she gave all and she trusted God. And what was the point of that? We look at things backwards. We often, even believers, we look at things the wrong way. We're impressed by the wrong things. If we had, I'll confess, if we were sitting there with Jesus watching the treasury, and remember they were, these were mostly coins, some of them large coins, getting thrown into this this horn shaped thing that would have made noise. It would have sounded like the machine at the grocery store when you're dumping all your coins in, probably, and all the noise. Everybody knows. Oh, look, someone's giving their laundry money and getting it uh, credit back. Well, you know, we would have been impressed by the large offerings. We would have, and we would have. Almost, maybe, been embarrassed by the widow's offering. We'd have been, oh, why, why did she do that? What's the point of her going up and doing that after these rich people gave these huge offerings, right? Same thing's happening here. We look at things the wrong way, just like the disciples did at times. They were impressed by the large buildings and the great stones, and they even wanted to tell Jesus, look at this place. This is amazing. And Jesus says, yeah, this, this whole thing's going to be gone soon. It's going to get torn down. It's going to have served its purpose. God looks upon the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. Disciples were awed by the temple, the great stones, and the buildings, just like we would have been. And our Lord, what did he do? He corrected their perspective, didn't he? In both cases, the widow's mites and the temple itself, he says, there won't be one stone left upon another that won't be thrown down. Now, J.C. Ryle makes the following observation. He says, let us learn from this solemn saying that the true glory of a church does not consist in in its buildings for public worship, but in the faith and godliness of its members. You know, we're a small church. I don't know if you knew that. We're a pretty small church. Uh, we're smaller today. We're, we're, you know, people are sick, people are out traveling, and it's easy to look at that and go, why oh, is God even doing anything here today? We have ten people. You know, we're probably all discouraged when it's, when it's low attendance or something. When, when it's Sunday when people are sick, um, and we, we're tempted to think the wrong way, well, God must not be doing anything here. If he weren't all the numbers, we look at the numbers, all the numbers would be so much more impressive and and dramatic. Think about this. I don't know if you've looked around in in, uh, current events in in Europe, but you don't have to look much further than the old church buildings in much of Europe. The cathedrals, these large buildings where the gospel used to be faithfully preached from every Lord's Day, and they were filled with people. I mentioned this, uh, I forget, a few weeks ago, talking about the miracle of Dunkirk Millions of people streamed into those churches and prayed, right? Look at those churches now, the buildings. They're empty. Some of them are being turned into mosques. I mean, it, it couldn't get much worse. They're museums, they're museum pieces. You might go on a, maybe some of you have gone on tours in Europe and you've taken pictures and you go, wow, look at these church buildings. We meet in a dump and look at this place. I would have the same reaction. Nobody, you know, people visit this church, they don't walk in and go, Wow, what a, look, look at these beautiful stones. Look <laughs> at these great buildings. They say, What is this building normally used for? Why are these odd decorations on the wall that don't scream church? You know, uh, that, that kind of a thing. Well, those churches in Europe, they're empty. They're empty. They stand vacant. And those buildings bear a sad witness to the, the departure of the gospel left long before the people departed in those. Churches, nothing wrong with having a nice church building one day in God's providence. Maybe someday we'll have our own building. If you're going to dream, dream big, right? Uh, you know. But better to meet out in a field or in a catacomb or a rented hall such as this place where the gospel is really believed and preached than to meet in the most, most glorious building that you can imagine where the glory of the gospel is absent. We look at the wrong things. We are impressed by the wrong things. How often do churches pride themselves on the numbers? Numbers matter, don't get me wrong, but numbers don't tell the whole story. The widow's might should tell us that. Churches pride themselves on numbers, on buildings, on facilities, on worldly assets, and they judge their effectiveness, their usefulness to the Lord based upon those things. How often do we see those things as signs that all is well, and that God must be very happy with us? We're doing well in God's sight. On the other side of the coin, how often do we see the absence of those things? And the, and you know, or the presence of difficulties in our ministry and our lives, and we think somehow that there must be something wrong. There must be something wrong. The Lord must be displeased. He couldn't possibly be using us. And you read the scriptures, God used people and sent lots of persecutions and hardships their way. And it wasn't a sign that God was displeased with them or that he wasn't going to use them in some way. Let us thank the Lord for the blessings that he does bestow upon us, both as families and as a church family, Let us never place our confidence in those things or in the worldly things such as buildings, budgets, assets, or even our programs. Uh, Let us be mindful of Raoul's words that the glory and usefulness of the church uh, is is not found in those things, but it's found in, what does he say, the faith and godliness of its members. We need to take the lesson of the destruction of the temple to heart and see things how God views things and how God, uh, that we might be impressed by the right things and not not the wrong things, and have a worldly mindset with those things. Let's, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise that your word is so precise that it is inspired, it is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and by, by your inspiration it is true in every respect, whether it tells us of Methuselah being 969 years old, And all those things that we sometimes scratch our head at or a worldwide flood or even the destruction of the temple as Jesus so accurately predicted it years and years, decades before it came to pass. We give you praise that whatever you say is true and let God be true in every man a liar, that there is never a time in your scripture where your word leads us astray, both in historical things as well as mainly spiritual things, the way of knowing salvation. Uh, Through faith in Christ, your son, we ask that you would, Forgive us for the ways that we have a worldly mindset, for seeing things the way that uh, that that we shouldn't, and not having the mindset uh, that you have, not seeing things according to your word, and seeing things truly by the eyes of your by the eyes of faith. We ask that you would increase our faith, forgive us our shortcomings. We pray that if if there's anybody here this morning that does not yet know you, that you might even make today the day of their salvation. Open their eyes that they might see their sin, even if it's taking your name in vain the way these people did with the temple that they would see that as a sin worthy of hell, that they would look to Christ and have salvation in him, they would flee to him by faith and have life in his name. We pray that you would be pleased and glorified by by this church and and our sister churches in this town, that you would keep us from idolatry, keep us from uh, faith in worldly things such as buildings and whatnot, and give us grace to be used by you, proclaim the gospel of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.